The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. It's good to see a full house here this morning and uh, good to get underway with the spring semester and the balance of the academic year. And uh, as we remind you as students often, uh, we uh, have been praying for you. Uh, we will continue to pray for you as we uh, begin a new semester. The faculty and staff uh, began uh, their semester last week, as we always do, with a corporate service of prayer, where we come together simply reading scripture and praying together, and we prayed for you, uh, and that the Lord would give you grace and uh, strength equal to your tasks this semester. So uh, just know that you're being prayed for, and uh, it's, uh, I'm excited for what's ahead of us in the spring semester, and I'm excited to continue this particular series uh, in chapel. As uh, Dean Swift said, uh, this year I'm focusing our attention in the time that I have with you on this question, what in the world are we doing? Uh, and by that, what I'm referencing is that we would develop and take some time to think biblically about our roles and relationships and responsibilities in this world. That is, that as the people of God, as the as the, uh, the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters to one another, we have some roles and responsibilities, some of which we've already talked about with regard to our being husbands and wives and uh, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Uh, we've talked about those kinds of things, and for the balance of the year, I want to call our attention to some other things as well. And what we're talking about here is, as we think about this, it's really difficult in the day in which we live to actually talk about roles, relationships, and responsibilities because all three of those things are seen as being impositions that somehow damp out, damp down, or stomp down, or, or oppress our individual expressions as though roles and responsibilities and relationships are somehow obligations and as individuals we should be free of all obligations, free to do what we want, to think how we want, to live how we want, but you and I are Christians. And the verse that we focus on this year, one scripture, one university, is this, that if you would come after Jesus Christ, you must take up your cross daily and follow him, that the Christian life is the yielded life. And so for us, we have to guard very carefully that the thinking of the world does not permeate our thinking, that we begin to think that roles and relationships and responsibilities are somehow counter to our human flourishing. In fact, what I've been arguing all along is that they are given to us by God so that we may flourish for his purposes and his glory. And so we looked at marriage not as a, 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 an institution of the West meant to, to uh, create gender structures and, and uh, create gender uh, uh, um, orders that are sort of contrived and arbitrary, but rather that God embedded this very thing in creation for his glory, for the good of the world. And that's absolutely what we've been arguing about with regard to the family. So last semester, I sort of laid out this idea that we should be asking ourselves this question. In fact, I'm convinced now more than ever in my lifetime as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, what in this world are we doing? How are we to think about and carry out our relationships, roles, and responsibilities in this world? The Bible speaks into our lives about these things and how we are to think and live as men and women, as husbands and wives, 
mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, sisters and brothers, citizens, consumers, employees, and ultimately the servants of Jesus. The Bible speaks into those areas of our lives, and we should be thinking along those lines if we want to bring him glory and further his purposes. So this morning what I want to do is call our attention, as we've talked about marriage and family, and in the future I hope to talk about work in the economy, about our life of our minds and education, about citizenship and our relationship and responsibilities to government, even touching on issues about media and leisure. But today I want to call our attention to think about another aspect of our life in this world as members of the body of Christ, that is, I want to talk about the church. Now, as we look at all the varying statistics that exist about the church in this day, we'll find all kinds of information and statistics and data that is not the most encouraging to us as Christians. Post-COVID, people have not re-engaged with the church in the way we would have hoped that the pandemic actually created breaks and and disruptions to the patterns of assembling together, and many people have had a great difficulty re-engaging in the life of the body. We know, uh, because we see initiatives like the Keller Center, which our own Dr. Plummer is a part of, that people are attempting to endeavor to, to stem the tide of those that are walking out the back door of the church. Not just work to have people entering the front door, but what is happening to us as people are walking out the back door. We know how many college students lose their faith or deconstruct their faith during their years of study. We know that average evangelicals are not going to church anywhere near like four Sundays a month. So how are we to think about this? Well, I, this morning, want to call our attention to things that we might want to be thinking about that come from Scripture to talk about the church and our relationship and responsibilities to it. In the time I have with you, it won't be an exhaustive treatment of ecclesiology. You'll have plenty of time to do that in your coursework here. What I would like to do in the time we have is offer some perspective on this aspect of our life in this world, which is that we are the members of the body of Christ. We, as followers of Jesus, comprise the church. So how are we thinking about our roles and relationships and responsibilities with regard to her? The church, and the church has believed this from the beginning, the church is the body and bride of Jesus Christ. It is his work on earth. I have spent most of my adult life in working in parachurch, what we conveniently call in the modern world parachurch ministries. But I have been been reminded at every turn from, from spiritual leaders in my life who spoke with authority that parachurch ministry is great, but it is not the church. The university is not a substitute for the church in your life. The church is the body and bride of Christ. It is his work on earth. And we should take it seriously because Jesus takes it seriously. In fact, what do we read in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where Jesus turns to Peter and says, you are Peter, and on this rock, he says what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, in that passage in Matthew, makes it very clear that he is building his church and it will be victorious. The gates of hell, whatever is happening in the world around us, whether it's the indifference and mockery and derision that we experience as Christians that's directed towards the church or the persecution that we see in other parts of the world where the church is being torn apart by real world, real life, real time violence, we know this promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is an indication of Jesus' work and his commitment, love, and the importance that the church has in the teaching of Jesus. He turns and says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christians organized themselves very quickly after the resurrection And we read in Acts chapter 2 a very interesting passage about life in the early church. Beginning at verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church came together for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, for the reading of scripture, for prayer, to to uphold the teaching of the apostles. That's what the early church did. And there was such a bond that formed between them that they had all things in common. They were selling what they owned to give to one another. Now just a side note, because you know that I teach the government class here, this is not a passage of scripture that is indicating in any way that Christianity condones socialism. I would remind you of Winston Churchill's quote, in Christianity, what's mine is yours. In socialism, what's yours is all of ours. Very clearly, what this passage says is that the believers came together and held all things in common to further the cause of the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They gathered together for prayer and the reading of scripture and fellowship. There was life in that church in the context of of great difficulty and persecution and threat of harm. They were one from the very beginning. In fact, we also read in Acts chapter 8 that this group of believers also experienced great hardship. In fact, it's said that Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, the word in, in, in my Bible is ravaged. The church was ravaged. And a few verses later, scattered by persecution, and in the scattering of the church as a result of persecution, the gospel was spread. But Saul of Tarsus is ravaging the church. He's dragging Christians, men and women, from their homes and putting them in prison. This is the context in which the early church is functioning, yet they still gather together. In the midst of great hardship, they still gather together. I'm reminded so many times when I talk to people from other parts of the world, they, they, they marvel at the apathy and indifference of American Christians towards the church because we have the freedom to simply cross the street and assemble. And in other parts of the world, they dare not go to church the same way twice for fear of being followed and imprisoned. 
In other parts of the world, the church's assembly takes place under constant threat of life and limb. Yet here we have the freedom to assemble and have grown apathetic and indifferent regarding it. But in the early days, the church continued on its faithful gathering together for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, for prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread, for the meeting of one another's needs in a context in which they were ravaged by a man who would become their leader. It is scattered, but continues to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, in Acts chapter 9, we read of Saul's conversion. In Acts chapter 11, we read this, that the Christian disciples were referred to as Christians first at Antioch. They were the church, the followers of Jesus, who had been assembling for quite some time, and eventually in Antioch, they're referred to as Christians. And soon after that, there's some organization that comes. In Acts chapter 14, we read about the appointment of elders. The church is growing. Its number is being added to daily in a hostile pagan context. Added to daily. The church is growing and developing It's thriving. And when you read the New Testament writings, you will see that many of them are written to churches with exhortations about how to conduct life and ministry within the church. These letters settle disputes. They talk about ministry opportunities and the need for missional outreach. They talk about the need for prayer and for benevolence to meet the needs of others. The church, in a very difficult context, is thriving and quickly as it is growing, becomes organized, and the church appoints elders. So in the church, there is authority. There's the authority of scripture. There is the authority of of ruling elders and, and shepherds who care for the flocks. But what we see throughout the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to read it, is that the church matters a great deal to Christians. It doesn't just matter in antiquity, though. When we look at ancient times, we say, well, you know, it was a different day. I mean, today there are so many other things that vie for our attention, and we're so much busier, and we have so many more things at our disposal and advantage. And so somehow the church mattered in antiquity and throughout history, but what does it mean to us today? What does the church do throughout history in its various historical and cultural contexts? Well, Not to exhaust the subject, but just throw a few things out there. Over the course of its history, the church has experienced varying degrees of influence. All you need to do is to look at the different station the church held under Nero versus the Christian emperor Constantine. The church has enjoyed different kinds of influence in society and in politics and culture throughout the course of its history. It's been persecuted in certain points in time in its history and in certain points and places in the world. There are various ways in which the church has also been influenced by the world around us. These are things we need to be mindful of as Christians who are a part of the body of Christ today. That the church has a relationship with the culture and society in which it functions, but it's also true that that society and culture can have an influence upon the church I heard a quote years ago that has always struck me as incredibly profound and penetrating. It goes like this. Christianity, the church, began in Israel as an idea, went to Greece as a relationship, began in Israel. I'm getting dripped on here, so the, um, pardon me. I love this pulpit and do not want to see it dripped upon. The... Uh, 
reset. The culture in which we live can have an influence on the church. I'm reminded of a quote years ago that I heard. I I don't know to whom it should be attributed, but it's incredibly profound and penetrating that Christianity, the church, begins in Israel as a relationship, goes to Greece and becomes an idea, goes to Rome and becomes an institution, goes to Europe and becomes a cause, goes to America and becomes an enterprise. That the church has taken on the characteristics of the prevailing context in which it, it exists, and that is probably true because we're human beings. But the church and Christians should be mindful of that influence The church is the body and bride of Christ and it should be cared for. And while we have varying degrees of influence in the world, we also need to be aware of the ways in which the world is influencing us. So think about the attitudes that prevail towards the church today and the ways in which they may be influencing us. The suspicion and disdain that exists for organized religion and for religion in general. There's a sensitivity to spiritualism, but not to authoritative religious claims and truth assertions. In the post-Christian culture in which we live, the church is to be private, kept out of all things related to society and culture. If you believe it, keep it to yourself. But as Christians, we're to proclaim the good news of Jesus and worship God. In fact, Jesus says, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. So it's not for us to keep our faith private, although the culture around us would like to do that. In an increasing secularization of society and culture in which we find ourselves, the temptation for Christians is to borrow from secular thinking to take the edge off our Christian beliefs. The kind of anti-institutionalism that exists in our culture, that all things that exist are necessarily corrupt simply because they exist, that includes the church. But you and I have to have a different view of the church. It is more than a social institution. It's the body and bride of Jesus. And the whole cultural enamorment with anti-authoritarianism, that somehow all authority is impositional and obligating you to things that are not in your best interest, yet that we're very clear that the church appointed elders and shepherds not just to care for the flock, but to exhort and encourage and to lead the flock. And then finally, the extreme individualism that's rampant in our culture, that we make all our decisions about what we like, what we prefer, what benefits us according to our own judgments. All these things are part of the world in which we live, and they are shaping not just the way the church is expressing itself, but the way you and I conceive of the church. And so where does that leave us today? How is our perspective of the church being shaped by the prevailing thinking and sensibilities of this age? We must be careful about this. Because as was said, this is the body and bride of Jesus. How is our perception being shaped by the context in which we live, by the conditions and circumstances that we're facing, and by our own individual sensibilities? Because our participation as members of the body in the church is an outworking of our faith in Jesus and obedience to him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us in chapter 10, verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as you see the day approaching. The body is to come together. 
So in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that it's important for us and we are to be obedient in our participation in the church. We see that it is Christ's work, as we said in Matthew 16. And what we see in the passage that was read for us in Ephesians is that this is for our good. Let me read just a bit of this again. We see that the Lord God gave to the church people with gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head of the church, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. We are in the church because it is the place where Jesus is at work, it is the place where we grow into one and in spiritual maturity and there proclaim and preach his good news to the world. The church has purpose and you and I are to participate in it because its purpose is God's purpose. And this is very, very important. You and I have to be careful in what we're looking for when it comes to the church. The church is a place where we do get support and encouragement and grow. But it is not our personal therapeutic center. The church is a place where we fellowship with one another and our kids fellowship with their friends. It is a place where we come together as believers and enjoy one another's company, but it is not to be our social engagement outlet. That's not its purpose. The church is supposed to teach us and admonish us and to encourage us and to preach the word for the strengthening of our faith, but it is not a replacement for parental responsibility. It's not to supplement education. The church is the body and bride of Christ that has specific work to do, and all those things may happen in our lives, but we have to be careful not to see it that way. We must be careful in what we're looking for when it comes to the church. The church is not our personal psychological therapeutic treatment center. It's not our social engagement outlet. It's not our parental or educational supplement or replacement. If we let these, if we let it be these things to us, we will quit it as soon as we decide we no longer need these things. We will quit it when we conclude that it has failed us or others in these ways. We must remember that our participation in church is an outworking of our faith and obedience to Christ, not a scratching of our itches, a stroking of our egos, or compensation for our derelictions. Brothers and sisters, that means as students at Cairn University, this is not a parenthesis from which you take a break from church. You are believers in Jesus Christ. You are members of his body. We must take seriously this role and responsibility that we have in this world to the church because it was instituted for God's purposes and it has work that needs to be done and it does benefit you. It's not, that, it's, not, it's not that there isn't growth that takes place. It's not that you don't receive encouragement or support. But if you look at it like something you take on a transactional basis, you will drop it as soon as it is inconvenient for you, as soon as it's no longer meeting those needs, or as soon as you believe that it has failed you or others, you will drop it like a hot rock. And we have to be very careful 
I think that what we have to come to realize is that it's our way as Christians to be participants in the body and bride of Christ. We have been bought with a price, saved by his grace through faith, his shed blood, atoning sacrifice for our sin. We are his people, and we should live like it. We should love one another and care for one another. We should submit and subject ourselves to one another in the fellowship of the church. It is God's work on earth, and we should take it seriously. And while we can argue over the role that the church should play in the broader culture and society in which we live, one thing's for sure, we should be very cautious about the way in which the thinking and sensibilities of this age and the world around us influences our own understanding of the church and our place in it. We come to this place together as a Christian university committed to what we're committed to as people from different experiences in different places, different churches, different homes, different families, different levels of faith commitment, different years of being followers of Jesus, different spiritual sensibilities. The beautiful thing about that is the scripture is very clear that regardless of all of that, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are members one of another. We are one, whether we acknowledge it or not. Our participation in the church is an act of worship because it is acknowledging that great spiritual truth that we have been made one through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and for the truth that we lean upon, that it is breathed out by you, that it is living and active that it is able to penetrate between joint and marrow, that it is useful for our teaching and instruction, for our encouragement and edification, and even our exhortation. Father, we pray that your spirit would use your word in our lives this term to draw us closer to you, to strengthen our faith. We pray, Father, that we would begin anew to think biblically about our place in this world, about the roles and relationships and responsibilities that we bear as your people. We ask, Father, for grace to trust you and to live according to your word. And Father, I am mindful to pray this morning for those who are deeply committed in their walk with your son Jesus, for those who are striving every day to take up their cross and follow. We pray that you would cause them to not grow weary in doing well, that you would encourage them. We pray that you would keep them moving forward in their spiritual lives. We pray that you would protect them from the sin of spiritual pride and arrogance, that they might uh, echo the words uh, that uh, so many have spoken, that there but by the grace of God go I. Give us humility in our faith. For those who are confused and walking in a fog, who don't know which direction to go, who are struggling with degrees of spiritual motivation and commitment, we pray that your spirit would be at work in them, that you would use your word to clear the fog, to blow back the smoke, that you would make their friends and professors and staff members that they engage with a blessing and encouragement to them spiritually, to bring them into focus and allow them to 
live out the commitments that they want despite their being confused and discouraged. We pray that you might embolden them to press on. And Father, for those in our midst whose hearts have grown hard and cold, who are shaking their fists, who have bought into spiritual apathy and indifference, we pray that your spirit would break the will of those who are resisting your truths and your good news. Father, regardless of where we stand in Jesus, we pray that you would make us mindful of our obligations to one another as brothers and sisters, as members of Christ's body. We pray that you would impress upon us the importance of Christian fellowship, not only here, but that we would take seriously our responsibilities to the church and enjoy the blessings that you intend for us as a result of that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.